Thank you, Gary, for that introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here uh, again. Uh, as many of you know, this is my this will be my second time doing this. First time was last year, and it was, the occasion was a, an ice storm, a rich, classic Richmond ice storm. Uh, the turnout wasn't quite so good. Uh, and uh, the, another a, a di another difference between then and now. Uh, back then, as, as um, my friends in the audience know, I. Um, had lived since since I came to Richmond in 1989. Has lived out in the Short Pump area, and uh, because of the trouble getting in at the last RMA, uh, my parents and I, my wife and I decided to move to the city. So we moved so specifically so I could make sure I could get here, no matter what the weather. And so, I'm, but uh, as it turned out, I didn't need good weather to get in here today. I just needed to find some parking. That was the difficulty. Um, as I said, it's a pleasure to be here. This is a great tradition. Um, I'm glad to pick up where Al left off. I don't have uh, any of the farmer, farmer's daughter jokes that he has, uh, so you have to bear with me. might be a little dry by comparison, but um, it's a pleasure to get to talk to you and see, see so many friends in the audience. Um, it's a pleasure in part because the economic outlook is fairly encouraging uh, this year. Um, growth is on a solid footing, uh, and this despite the run-up in energy prices and uh, the disruption of some, a devastating hurricane season last year. After a brief pause last fall following the hurricanes, employment is again expanding at a healthy pace. Consumer spending continues to grow briskly, and business investment spending is fairly robust right now. Uh, now, granted, housing activity uh, seems uh, to be softening right now, and at least some potential price level pressures uh, remain in the pipeline. Um, so it's, it might be too soon to light the fireworks, but I, inflation expectations seem well contained, and we at the Fed are well positioned uh, to respond uh, to inflation pressures should they emerge. So I'm going to talk uh, today um, about a little more, in a little more detail about the outlook. As usual, my remarks uh, reflect my views and do not necessarily reflect the views of any others in the Federal Reserve System. So to begin, the really striking uh, aspect of the outlook uh, is the extent to which uh, economic activity in general and consumer spending in particular um, rebounded from the shock of the storms uh, last year. In the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, uh, there were widespread fears that consumers might pull back fairly sharply on spending, uh, both in response to higher retail energy prices and out of a general sense of sort of heightened anxiety about the potential economic fallout from uh, the storms. Survey measures of consumer confidence, uh, which plummeted in September, seem to bolster uh, this view. But the effect of the storms on consumer outlays have turned out to be far more limited than expected. Uh, and this exemplifies the off-sighted resilience of the U.S. economy in recent years. Apart from auto sales, which slid in the latter part of the summer, uh, following those, those summer employee discount uh, programs, uh, retail sales have held up fairly well, and overall consumer spending has continued to advance uh, since the early fall. And on the whole, holiday spending came in stronger than many feared in the immediate aftermath of the hurricanes. So I'd argue that this illustrates uh, fairly well 
how consumption expenditures um, are governed predominantly by households' assessment of their future income prospects, um, rather than by any sort of general economic nervousness or or um, problems, despite how they respond to pollsters. When pollsters call, they can respond, and often that's influenced by news reports, what they see on TV, and so on. Uh, but when it comes time to actually making spending decisions, consumers are most often driven by their particular job prospects and their income prospects going forward. And if those aren't perturbed significantly by something like a storm, even if they're nervous about the outlook, they'll still keep spending. Housing market activity has been very strong over the last several years. Um, obviously, that's um, uh, due in part to the historically low inflation-adjusted mortgage interest rates that we've seen over that time period. The fall in interest rates that began in 2001 stimulated spending across a set of interest rate-sensitive sectors uh, like housing and durable goods, and that partially offset the weakness that was emerging then in business investment spending. Over the last two years, business investment spending has um, started to pick up uh, and has expanded um, at a pretty healthy pace. And as a result, real interest rates have had to rise uh, to, to, to offset that a bit. And we've expected over the course of that time period a gradual handoff from housing investment, residential investment activity, to business investment. And that, but that handoff is yet to occur. If you look at um, nominal spending and you take the ratio of, of business investment, of residential investment, I'm sorry, if you take the ratio of business investment spending to residential investment spending, that ratio fell from about two and three quarters in 2000 to about one and three quarters in 2004. Pretty sharp shift in investment shares um, at, uh, at the aggregate level. And it, but that ratio has been fairly constant, so we haven't seen a shift back uh, since the business investment uh, spending pickup uh, took place. Instead, the combination of low inflation-adjusted interest rates and fairly sustained real income gains over the last couple of years has really impelled uh, housing demand over that time period and has kept housing demand coming in stronger over the last two years than we've expected. <clears throat> in recent months, we've received widespread re reports of what one contact of ours calls a, a return to normalcy in housing markets in our district. And we've received similar reports um, from around the Federal Reserve System. And these, these show up in the, the beige book that we released a, a, um, this past Wednesday afternoon, for example. Um, we used to see earlier in this year, we're seeing multiple first date bids, sale prices at above the asking price, things like that. And that's a lot less common now. And the amount of time houses spend on the market has, has returned to more normal levels as well. Now, at the same time, the aggregate measures that we use to gauge housing market activity um, has only recently shown some pullback from their peaks, the peaks that they reached over the summer. Um, we just got this week uh, housing starts numbers for December, and they show a sharp fall. But even having said that, if you back up the series and you open up the, you know, you open up the graph and look at um, several years' worth of data, um, housing activity is still at a very strong level by historical standards. But still, having said that, I do believe that um, mortgage rates are going to be 
somewhat above the recent lows in the coming year. And so I'd expect housing price appreciation to flatten out in the coming year and for aggregate residential investment to stop growing and perhaps even fall in real terms uh, in 2006. In contrast, the fundamentals for business investment, particularly in equipment and software, are fundamentally quite sound. Uh, business output is expanding steadily and real funding costs are relatively low, both because inflation-adjusted real interest rates are low, but also because corporate risk spreads are relatively narrow, in fact, quite narrow by historical standards. Evidently, there's been a sufficient flow of new opportunities uh, to de deploy new capital profitably. Business investment in equipment and software has grown at over 11% in real terms since the first quarter of 2003, and it appears poised to grow at rates almost that strong uh, over the coming year. Capital formation, um, this is an old theme, capital formation, particularly investment in information and communications technology, which a lot of people refer to as ICT, has played an instrumental role in the widely noted surge in productivity growth in the late 1990s. The, the fundamental driving force there was a, a rapid and sustained fall in the price of ICT type of equipment. Now, the, the initial productivity figures for the late 90s were subsequently re revised downward, but still, if you look at the data, um, it shows a fairly significant acceleration from around 1.5%, the rate seen up to 1995, in the 20 years up to 1995, to about 2.6% over the second half of the 1990s. And 1.5 to 2.6 might not sound much, but you take that, and I know for this audience, what I have to do is remind you that you know compounding that over a decade leads to fairly substantial differences in standards of living. Um, so those, by by the standards of historical fluctuations in productivity growth, those are big swings, and that's a substantial surge in productivity growth. Now, what's, what's been remarkable over the last several years is that productivity has grown even more rapidly since then. Uh, since the end of 2000, we've seen labor productivity grow at 3.4%, uh, really stunning. Um, and it's particularly noteworthy because capital formation has proceeded at a much lower rate. There's been much less uh, business investment. You know, the intuition is that you can get more output per worker by adding equipment per worker, more machines, more capital uh, input, uh, more output with the same number of workers. But despite the slowdown in investment that occurred in 2001, uh, we've seen sustained increases in labor productivity at, at rates even greater than we saw in the late 90s. You can deduce from the fact that, that investment slowed down but it, it, uh, productivity growth accelerated, you can deduce that much, if not most, of the productivity growth in this decade, in the last five years, has been attributable to what economists call, and here's, a, here's my only technical term in the talk, total factor productivity, um, which means output growth in excess of the growth of all inputs, both capital and labor. And that's, that's generally achieved. You might think of that as something for nothing, but that's generally achieved through the reorganization of business processes. You take the, the equipment you have and the labor you have and reorganize the business process, optimize, and you're able to achieve you know, more output with the same amount of inputs. And that's really been the source of, of productivity growth over the last five years. 
One interpretation of this, I think it's a very attractive one, um, is that these IT, ICT investment outlays uh, that were so strong in the late 1990s yielded both an initial productivity gain, uh, which our, our standard methods would attribute to the contemporaneous uh, increase in the capital stock, it's called capital deepening. And then later, further productivity gains at, down the road as business processes are, are re-optimized, re-engineered around the new configuration of uh, IT infrastructure. Since those gains occur after the point at which the investment takes place, our standard techniques attribute them to what I call total factor productivity, this kind of something for nothing um, type of productivity growth. Now, one implication of this perspective, and the reason I'm going into all this detail, is that um, the current expansion in business out investment, if this, if this kind of hypothesis is true, the current expansion in business investment is laying a foundation, if this is true, for future gains in total factor productivity. And so it bodes well, I think, under this hypothesis for future productivity increases and those ultimately pass through to real income. So it provides some grounds for optimism. The long run rate of increase in productivity growth, if you go back a century or more, it's been about two and a quarter percent. So that acceleration, first that, that deceleration to one and a half percent in the 70s, 80s, and 90s was notable. And that acceleration to over two and a quarter percent, 2.6 was notable. 3.4 percent is, is really um, striking. This perspective gives some optimism that productivity growth, although it may slow down, um, could come in, continue to come in above 2.5% over the coming years. Um, unfortunately, the empirical evidence we have on this hypothesis I sketched out is sort of limited and, and indirect. Um, so it, it can't be treated as sort of settled, a settled perspective yet. Um, productivity growth forecasting is very hard, and as a result, I think you have to do this with a, uh, a good deal of humility. Gains in labor productivity, as I said, whether they're due to adding capital to the production process or due to this reorganization, um, ultimately pass through to real incomes. Uh, our competitive markets just ensure that that gets passed on to, in the form of higher labor income. As a result, over the last several years, pers real total personal income has grown uh, at a decent clip, over 2% per year since the rebound in employment in mid-2003. And this despite significant energy price increases, which take a nick out of real earnings. If productivity growth continues, um, at or above trend, as seems likely, then we should see healthy real income growth in the coming years, anticipation of which should help support consumer spending growth in 2006. Labor markets have recovered since the recession in two, 2001. Although employment growth was stagnant for a time following the downturn, hiring picked up again in 2003. Of course, Hurricane Katrina disrupted uh, labor markets by forcing uh, the displacement of a substantial number, close to a million uh, residents of the Gulf Coast regions that were affected. That separated a number, a substantial number of workers from their employers. And in addition, the storms damaged a substantial portion of the capital stock in the affected regions. And as a result, U.S. employment growth at the aggregate level was uh, noticeably depressed in both September and October. 
Um, although we, we don't really have uh, precise quantitative estimates of the storm's effects. Payroll expansions averaged over 200,000 jobs per month since October, however, a fairly healthy rate. Uh, and that's more, because that's more than enough to keep up with the growth in the working age population. So to summarize, overall outlook is, is uh, for a healthy expansion this year in 2006. I think real GDP will grow at about 3.5%, give or take a little. Household spending should grow at almost the same rate. Uh, business investment should expand substantially faster uh, than overall output. Residential investment should, is going to expand more slowly and perhaps even fall in real terms. And I expect employment growth to track uh, the growth in the working age population in 2006. This is a fairly balanced picture, a uh, fairly attractive one. Naturally, there's some uncertainty attached to it that needs to be recognized. Economic fundamentals could depart uh, from their anticipated trajectories in any number of ways that would leave uh, a mark on U.S. Uh, economic aggregates. For example, spot oil prices um, or other commodity prices for that matter could well turn out to be either above or below uh, the path embodied in futures prices. Many global commodity markets have been affected by the unanticipated surge in worldwide demand over the last several years. Those for which supply elasticities are low, uh, for which you know, it's difficult to increase the physical supply uh, fairly rapidly, have experienced significant price run-ups as a result. Oil is obviously in that category. Commodity price surprises in either direction uh, could alter aggregate supply conditions and either add or subtract from output growth over the coming year. On the demand side, there's some uncertainty regarding the rate at which housing activity is likely to cool in the coming year. Although I don't think that a sharp fall in housing uh, investment is at all likely, the range of a range of forecasts from flat to moderately declining I think seems perfectly reasonable. And there's as, as I've said, there's been continued growth in the share of output devoted to business investment. I think that's highly likely to continue in the coming year. It's always difficult to foresee with any precision uh, just what scale of investment businesses are going to find profitable and attractive to undertake in the coming year. So um, you'd have to put some bounds of uncertainty about business investment over the coming year. But overall, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly confident. Um, consumer spending, uh, because it depends on expected income growth and because expected income growth t tends to vary less than other economic fundamentals over the cycle, um, both economic theory and empirical evidence suggest pretty strongly uh, that um, consumer spending will, will uh, fluctuate within a, a more narrow range. Uh, the, the range of likely outcomes is correspondingly more narrow for consumer spending. Let me comment a bit on the, 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 some of the implications of this uncertainty. Um, differences between how economic fundamentals are expected to unfold and how they actually do unfold can have important implications for real interest rates and thus for monetary policy. I've emphasized on some other occasions in the last year that a real interest rate, uh, as you know, real interest rate, inflation-adjusted interest rate, real interest rate is a relative price. It's the price of current resources relative to the resources one either foregoes by borrowing, 
the future resources one either foregoes by borrowing or that one obtains by investing. So it's the price of current versus future resources. Real interest rates need to respond to changes in the relative pressure on current versus future resources. Just as today, the changes in the relative price of butter and margarine have to respond to the relative pressure on butter and margarine markets. Unpredicted movements in economic fundamentals, to the extent that they affect the relative pressure on current and future resources, will have implications for policy rates. Even in situations where inflation is low and inflation expectations are low and well contained. Core inflation has been low and relatively steady in the last few years. The inflation measure that is widely preferred on methodological grounds, um, what we call the, the core uh, personal consumption expenditures price index, has averaged 1.8% over the 12 months that ended in November. That's the last uh, month we have some figures for. That is within the 1% to 2% range that I and several of my colleagues have suggested uh, as an announced target range uh, for the Federal Reserve System. Even before Katrina, overall inflation, including food and energy prices, was elevated due to a run-up in energy prices that occurred in the spring and summer. Hurricanes Katrina and Rita severely disrupted uh, energy production in the Gulf and led to sharp increases in refining margins and prices for gasoline and natural gas, this is well known. U.S. natural gas production, petroleum refining, and crude oil production are still down since Katrina. Uh, we haven't, uh, haven't corrected all those shut-ins uh, that have occurred uh, in the Gulf. Immediately following Hurricane Katrina, the magnitude of the effects on the Gulf oil uh, energy situation became clear. Many observers came to fear that the resulting sharp increase in energy prices might lead to a broader acceleration of inflation, perhaps even recessionary forces. These observers appeared to be reasoning by analogy to the 1970s, but I believe this analogy is severely mistaken. Inflation expectations in the 1970s were unanchored. Uh, the credibility of the Fed was low, uh, and the government more broadly, our commitment to keeping inflation low from resisting increases in inflation that were taking place at that time was, was quite low. People expected, when energy price increases to occur, occurred, people expected the Federal Reserve to allow those price increases to feed through to an acceleration in overall inflation. The Federal Reserve, for its part, its part, often accommodated that expectation and prevented short-term interest rates from rising. In fact, at times, we kept nominal interest rates from rising at the same rate that inflation rose. And as a result, we implicitly reduced real interest rates, which provided further monetary stimulus, and that was exactly the wrong uh, thing to do at the time. It just exacerbated the inflationary impulse. The Fed was then forced, within a year or so, to reverse course and raise real interest rates dramatically uh, in the 70s in order to bring inflation back down. But in the process, we had to step on the brakes so hard that we exacerbated uh, the real effects of the oil price shocks and often in actually caused re recessions. 
The proper lesson from the 1970s, in my view, is not that energy price shocks induce recessions or cause widespread inflation. There's no need for that to happen. The lesson is that monetary policy that responds by accommodating those shocks and allowing energy prices to pass through to broader overall inflation can induce instability, uh, can allow inflation to rise and then be forced to correct the problem and induce a recessionary contraction. That's the lesson, that monetary policy has to respond appropriately. In my view, the appropriate monetary policy response to energy price shocks is to remain focused on price stability. That way the economy can respond to energy price shocks the way it ought to. The relative price of energy rises, but we don't get an overall surge in inflation. Core inflation would remain anchored uh, if we did things appropriately. In the immediate aftermath of Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, monetary policymakers have naturally focused on this risk that uh, the attendant energy price increases would pass through uh, to an acceleration in core inflation. Now, the lack of a surge in core PCE inflation figures since September is somewhat encouraging. Still, I think it's too soon to declare that pass-through risk is entirely behind us right now. This assessment is consistent with the statement that the Federal Open Market Committee made uh, following its December meeting, which noted, uh, and I quote, elevated energy prices have the potential to add to inflation pressures, unquote. To my mind, any energy price passed through to core inflation that is more than marginal or transitory uh, would be unwelcome. Thus far, market participants appear to believe that core inflation rates will, will remain uh, contained. Survey measures of expected inflation uh, rose sharply in September. Uh, apparently, consumers responding to pollsters on the telephone uh, thought inflation was going to be higher. Uh, but since then, they've, they've come back down to, to where they were before the hurricanes. We prefer uh, to look at measures of, and we place more weight on, measures of expected inflation uh, derived from market prices of inflation-protected U.S. Treasury securities. You can look at these and compare them to the prices of uh, plain vanilla, ordinary, non-inflation-protected U.S. Treasury securities, and back out of them an, an estimate, a quantitative estimate, of the implicit inflation compensation built into those, those two yield curves. And you can back that out at horizons up to 10 years. Those implicit inflation compensation measures uh, drifted up a, a bit this past fall uh, after the storms, but they've come back down. They've returned back to about the levels they were in the middle of the summer, and that's heartening. To maintain credibility for price stability, it's essential that monetary policy should respond vigorously to any visible erosion in inflation expectations. Many of you may have noticed that in the statement released following the last FOMC meeting, uh, the term accommodation was dropped. Uh, in ref that was a word used to reference current monetary policy stance. Um, it was dropped, or one, words of one of my colleagues who was given an honorable discharge uh, had been in place in the, in the uh, statement since 2001. Many observers took this as a sign that the committee may be coming close to completing the current sequence of tightening moves that began in June of 2004. I discussed earlier that in an era of low and stable inflation rates, real interest rate movements, 
movements in real inflation-adjusted interest rates will predominantly reflect the relative pressure on current versus future resources. Recessions in modern industrialized economies are, are usually associated with transitory declines in the demand for current goods and services. Since demand ultimately will recover, real interest rates need to fall in recessions. This is why interest rates come down in recessions, to reflect the abundance of current relative to future resources. Thus, the FOMC engineered a reduction in real interest rates in 2001 that lasted until mid-2004, when a steady recovery in demand became evident. Since then, the economy has been on a transitional trajectory towards a path characterized by a sustained and balanced expansion with relatively full utilization of resources. Along this transition path, real interest rates have been rising toward a range consistent with the sustained growth path to which the economy has been headed. Deserves emphasis, however, that sustained growth is not likely to be perfectly smooth and predictable. Unpredicted variations in economic fundamentals from time to time can and will affect economic conditions, even if they're not so large as to induce a recessionary break in growth. And as I emphasized earlier, if these variations have implications for the relative pressure on current versus future resources, they will have implications for real interest rates as well. The long expansions of the 1980s and 1990s uh, were both cases in which real interest rates fluctuated as the economy experienced sustained economic growth. Thus, whenever the current sequence of tightening moves reaches completion, and I'm not going to tell you when that's going to happen, uh, short-term interest rates should not be expected to remain constant for an extended period of time. Instead, they're likely to move from time to time uh, during the expansion ahead. Policymakers are, will need to be, and I'm sure will, remain alert for, uh, for movements in economic fundamentals that shift the relative pressure on current versus future resources in ways that require changes in real interest rates, even if inflation pressures subside. Concludes my prepared remarks. Thank you very much.